Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm Dan Rundy. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with Nicole Andal. Nicole is the Director of the Diversity and Leadership in International Affairs Program here at CSIS. Prior to joining CSIS, she was Senior Counsel to Torres Law Firm, where she provided legal counsel to U.S. and international companies on global trade law. Between the private sector, the public sector, and her work in the community, Nicole is a valuable addition to CSIS, and I'm really pleased to have her with me here today. Nicole, I'm so glad you're here at CSIS. Hi, Dan. Thank you very much for having me on today. It's a true pleasure. I'm very, very excited to be here at CSIS. Could you tell us about Diversity and Leadership International Affairs Program? What is it, and what do you hope to accomplish in your new role? So the Diversity and Leadership Project in International Affairs It started as an internal exercise to get CSIS arms around the issues related to diversity and inclusion in international affairs, not just at CSIS or within the think tank community, but also more largely in the international and foreign policy affairs community. So the whole purpose of the program is to take both a scholarly approach to understand what's really going on here, what are the root causes for any lack of diversity, what's happening in terms of employment, retention, promotion, where are the trends, and then, of course, what's the business case for diversity and inclusion in our field? Because the root of everything is why do you want to do it in the first place? So that's what the whole purpose of the project is, is to be both a service for CSIS, but also to become a thought leader in diversity and leadership in international affairs within our larger community. Well, I'm really glad because, as you know, I feel strongly about this. My thesis is that as a country of immigrants and as a melting pot country, we've got 300 million folks who bring a lot of different strengths to the global challenges that we face. And I've told you my story about I think that it was a mind blowing experience for the United States to send a Chinese American to represent the United States in the Obama administration, Ambassador Gary Locke just like any other gringo, stood in line at Starbucks in China and ordered coffee, carried his own suitcase. This was all on television. And this supposedly, like, this caused, like, a freak out in China because they'd never seen a senior official stand in line for coffee or carry his own bag or her own bag. And then my friend Aaron Williams, who was a senior foreign service officer at USAID and had a brilliant career at aid, was named the first USAID mission director in 1994 in South Africa at the end of apartheid sent a really powerful message. It was a really important thing for us to send Aaron Williams to represent the United States at that time. But there's many examples like this, and I think it helps in many different ways. And so I feel strongly that we may be even more able to achieve foreign affairs and national security goals in some circumstances because of that. Absolutely. And you know, my foreign affairs career began at Howard University, having graduated high school right at the end of the Cold War in Europe, and, you know, started my freshman year sandwiched between the end of the Cold War and the end of apartheid, which happened when I was in college. And so seeing this arc of, 
you know, international change early in my career, and then seeing this whole cadre of very diverse professionals starting to enter, you know, public service, starting to enter think tanks, enter academia, enter industry, it was a very exciting time. But what became very clear is that you saw this arc, you saw this huge push at the front end to bring in diversity, and then you see this diminishment of the numbers as you start to move into middle management, and then you get up into the senior roles where you didn't really see much diversity at all. And so over the course of my professional career, starting to think about this and seeing in action what it means when you have a lack of diversity, when you're engaging with a foreign partner, for example, and understanding if you're pushing forward principles, you need to reflect what you're telling others that they should be doing. That's one part. Also, the agility that comes with having a diverse workforce in our profession is so crucial because we can't keep having one-note answers to these increasingly complex national security and foreign policy issues. We need to have some agility and flexibility and innovation. And you don't get that without diversity, without diverse voices helping in that decision process. So how did you get interested in foreign affairs, Nicole? And, and where did you grow up? So I was a Federal Reserve Bank brat. My dad was an economist and banker. My parents met here in Washington, D.C. at Howard University and then moved to New York before I was born so my dad could work on Wall Street and the Federal Reserve. So I started in a very international community in New York. And later, moving to Cleveland, Ohio, my job took us to a town called Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is known for innovation in social engineering and racial equality. And so we moved to Shaker Heights, Ohio. Again, this is the late 80s. We had an influx of new Russian immigrants to my high school. And after years of French, I said, oh, that's interesting. I'd rather <laughs> study that language. You know, it was always an interest in people and it was always an interest in connection. And particularly growing up in the generation that was exposed to Red Dawn and Rocky Four, right? <laughs> you know? I, I was exposed to both of those. Right. You know, and thinking, but then actually interacting with people from Russia specifically and Ukraine and going, wait a minute, this is not what I've been told. They're not all bad guys. It, it really opened my eyes to, you know, the possibility. And I actually ended up doing a semester of law school in Eastern Ukraine. Really? And it's just always been where my talent lie. Now, I have to admit, people in my family weren't really sure what could be done with a Russian studies undergraduate degree, but I would say I've done pretty well for myself and I've had a very fulfilling and dynamic career as a result of it. I started my federal service as an honor law graduate at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The first week I was on that job was September 11th. So again, it was <laughs> it's one of those historic moments in, in our national security and foreign affairs policy that had a really strong impact on my future career. So because of my background in Russian and Eastern European studies, I ended up at the Department of Energy working nuclear nonproliferation issues first and export control. I'm sorry, I have to ask you, do you say nuclear or nuclear? I'm a nuclear guy. W used to say nuclear, so I always thought that was very endearing. I say nuclear. I know you say but, nuclear, but right? I, I know. <laughs> I always ask people that. When people start talking about nuclear stuff, I always say, sorry, <laughs> do you say nuclear or nuclear? For, for clarity, they're also uh, sneakers, and I carry a pocketbook. <laughs> I do not wear tennis shoes or carry a purse. <laughs> okay. All right, so, so you started the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and then how did you end up at DOD? 
So the nonproliferation community and the federal government, it's a very fluid community and that people kind of move around. And so by virtue of me being on these interagency working groups on nonproliferation as a Department of Energy representative, when the position opened at DOD, it just happened to be the person I served on this group with who was outgoing and said, you should take my job. So I went over to DOD into that person's role. Again, still working nonproliferation, nuclear focus, but then moving into larger WMD proliferation policy on the export control side. Then I ended up working in a different office at DOD doing WMD interdiction policy, which took us out of the more regulatory government outreach world and directly into a much more dynamic role in terms of actually interdicting illicit cargo in transit and making policy decisions based on that. And my role was actually serving as interagency coordinator in my office. So I was in charge of once we knew something was going to happen, working with all of the respective agencies to get all of their position and putting it together, tee it up for the secretary or whomever needed to give final approval to say yay verily on the course of action from a DOD perspective. So it was a great job. It taught me a lot about communication and working with disparate opinions and finding the happy middle ground to move forward and taught me lessons in efficiency. So you've told a story in another context about going, I think, to a different country and having an experience being across the table. Could you tell that story? So at NNSA, one of our roles was to serve as liaison to our counterparts in other governments' export control or nonproliferation policy shops. So to that end, we worked directly with our colleagues from India. This was early in their discussions with India on their possible reentry to the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. And it was interesting because Again, my colleagues from DOE who are fantastic at what they do and are deep subject matter area experts, it's a very homogenous group. So I'm the only person of color sitting at the table across from our counterparts from India. And so during this one discussion, I remember very vividly, kind of the flow of the discussion would be very easy, but then the moment that our colleagues needed to raise something about how they felt they should be regarded as a foreign partner, they directed most of those comments at me. And so they were looking and engaging directly with me, obviously so everyone could hear, but you know, you can take away whatever you want from that observation. But That's wild. And I always wondered, well, have they said this to anybody else? Is it just because I'm sitting at the table that we're, are we hearing something for the first time? Maybe the tone and the tenor is different. Maybe they're saying exactly the same thing, but they're expecting me to connect with them on a different level. I don't know, but it was quite remarkable. And I'd say a number of times over my career and educational life where I have been very remarkably the only black person or person of color to have participated in a program or to go somewhere or to interact, the reaction is always, well, we need more people like her to come here. 
So that leads me to my other question, like, okay, so what have been some of the challenges or factors that have limited diversity in the foreign policy field? Now people are saying we need more people like Nicole to be in here, but there have been, you know, maybe some challenges or factors that limited that. What's held that back? Well, I think it could be a few things. And again, this is my personal opinion from my professional career. I think our workplaces are too focused on culture from the perspective that we need to only have people in our office that fit into our culture. And whatever that culture may be, if it's real or perceived, I think the perception a lot of times is that someone coming from a different background is not going to fit into the culture of the office. I think that's one challenge. And so as a result, either they're not promoted or they're not brought in in the first place. I think the other challenge is that there's a lot of focus on entry level and not enough focus on inclusion for retention. So if you are doing a fantastic job recruiting diverse candidates, but they're all leaving and they see their colleagues moving up and they are not, or there are other practices within the workplace that have them feeling like outsiders more than their peers, we really need to take a look at how are we developing this talent to move up in the ranks? And is it on par with everyone else that's coming in the door? I have observed personally that it's not always the case. And as a result, you see a lot of lead. I think also there's a fear of diversity in terms of perception that radical ideas or frivolous ideas or marginal ideas will come in to the discussion and complicate matters from a policy-making or decision-making perspective. So again, going back to culture, if the culture is that you think everyone is going to work the same way and reach the same conclusions essentially the same way, then there could be a hesitance to bring somebody new in thinking that whatever they offer or however they work, it's not going to fit in with the model of the organization. How can we as foreign policy experts do more to promote diversity and inclusion in the field? Well, I go back to the business case. So I spent the first half of my career in government and the other half in industry. And so if you're thinking about it from a model of driving profit, how do you best serve your customer? Well, first of all, you know who your customer is and what they need and how do you get it to them in a way that it scratches the itch, right? And it gives them what they need to do their jobs better. The U.S. government, academia, they come to these experts because they need something that they don't have the time or the bandwidth to do and because they trust the results. So if we want to be innovators in our foreign policy, if we want to be innovators in our national security policy, again, I go back to that idea of agility and innovation. You cannot innovate in a vacuum. You have to bring in diverse voices, diverse experiences. And if we don't do that, it goes back to all of the arguments before about letting women into the workplace in the first place. You're going to lose access to that talent. You're going to lose that brain trust. You're missing out on opportunities to really be exceptional. And that's what makes America exceptional is our diversity. And if you're not taking advantage of that. We're leaving a lot of value on the table. You're leaving it out on the table. You know, it's just, it's a mistake. And so I agree. And it's sort of what I started with before about the examples like Ambassador Locke or my friend Aaron Williams. Like I know for a fact that sending somebody who was Chinese American to represent the United States of America as ambassador to China 
was not only was he a good ambassador, but also he brought something else to the conversation that was very important. Sending the first African-American USAID mission director to South Africa after apartheid, that was a very, very important signal to be sent. And he's a tremendous talent. He's a great friend and he's just someone who's just changed the world. But it was really important the United States of America sent Aaron Williams as mission director to South Africa in a post-apartheid period. So I think I agree with you. So what are some encouraging things that you're seeing in the foreign policy community in regard to elevating diverse voices or talk a little bit about that? So first of all, the fact that we're even having the conversation in the first place to me is a huge step because we never really used to talk about it before. It was always just an assumption that the profession would follow appropriately along with social trends. And so now we understand that it's a much more deliberate effort. And as such, we're treating it appropriately. I mean, the fact that I'm at CSIS in this position is significant. I've known CSIS for a couple of decades now, and I've always had the most respect for the institution. But the fact that I've brought in to do this to me is huge. I think also there is an understanding, again, of the need to be innovative and agile in our future defense posture, foreign affairs, and national security. And as a result, we're starting to see diversity as a necessary. It's not just a good thing to do. It's not just the right thing to do. It's something we have to do if we are going to continue to be at the forefront of the global dialogue on how to behave globally and nationally. And then lastly, I'm also heartened when I see this recognition that we can't just focus on recruitment. I see a lot more emphasis on the inclusion piece, a lot more emphasis on retention and development. And again, it's not a development from the purpose of we are helping people that are coming from intellectually or academically disadvantaged position. It's not a capability question. It's just, are you developing people the same way? Are you really giving them the same chance as you are everyone else in, in the workplace? Again, I think that was an assumption people had, and now they recognize that that can no longer be assumed. So we're going to work on it. So what have been some successful programs or initiatives that you've seen that have been implemented that we could extract some lessons from in the context of diversity and inclusion? At risk of being challenged on this conclusion, I will still say that I think that private industry, certain sectors have moved forward meaningfully in diversity. They've had the hard conversations and now they're really moving forward. The one industry that really jumps out at me, and it it could be because I come from this industry, it's aerospace and defense. They're uh, very directed and concerted efforts at diversity. It's woven throughout the entire life cycle of someone's career. So they've been having these discussions for decades now. They are off actively recruiting young professionals at the undergraduate business schools. They have expanded their view past the Ivies and elite HBCUs to all universities in the United States and internationally to find the best talent. And then they've really put a concerted effort in developing the talent that they bring in and doing what they can to give them the tools to rise and to succeed. And it's truly, to me, a good model to follow. Again, because they're, they're profit-driven, so they know, look, our workforce and our leadership needs to be reflective of the customers that we serve. 
How about this? We had the Secretary of State in front of you. Make the business case for why we need a diverse workforce at the State Department. So we are on the edge right now of making some significant strides in our international policy. And we are seeing some unprecedented successes, but we're also seeing some areas where we're truly failing. And since this is no longer a one-note global policy area, if we don't have diversity of voices at the table in making these policy decisions, we are at risk of repeating mistakes. We are at risk of losing our leadership position. We are at risk of not being able to connect meaningfully with our international partners or even understand our international partners in a way where our decisions are going to be driven by data and real-time information and not just our ideas about things. So look, Nicole, thanks for doing this. I'm looking forward to working with you. I'm really glad you're here at CSIS. I'm looking forward to putting this podcast out. Each of the senior leaders have made a commitment on diversity inclusion. I've got one next month. I'm coming to this from the business case. The business case you made is where I, of course, it's the right thing to do. But I think that's where I think we're going to get a lot more buy-in is pushing the business case. And so I'm very interested in working with you on this. And I I really look forward to collaborating with you. and, And thanks for coming on my podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. I look forward to working with you too. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 